creators of Relevant Magazine, this is The Relevant Podcast. Friday, November 22nd, 2019. You're listening to The Relevant Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Huckabee, here in Nashville, Tennessee, out there in Orlando, Florida. Joining us to make sure that we don't go too far off the rails, we got, as always, our illustrious producer, Chandler Strang. Hello. And we got not too far from Chandler out of office today, hanging out at home, keeping an eye on the home front with an adorable looking dog in the background. I see my friend, John David Harris. How you doing, JD? (laughs) Greetings. And out there in Loveland, Virginia, it's always good to welcome back to the podcast, uh, the person who keeps us off the rails against the best efforts (laughs) of Chandler and JD, Jesse Carey. Hello, hello. I feel like we should probably address the Loveland thing. I feel. Do we need, I, is it time? Yeah, I think it's time. I, I think it's time. I, I've been trying to. I've been. I've, I don't. I have been trying not to deign it with a response. But I, I suppose. I suppose. I, I, Tyler, I'm curious. Is what if you had to guess on my actual mailing address what the city was? What would you say? <laughs> oh, I, I actually know the answer to this. You do because I you sent you a package it. recently. Yeah, you and, did. You did. And it's, <laughs> it's neither Loveland nor Loverland. <laughs> But you're just, it's just, you're just straight up out there in, in Virginia Beach. That's right. I am in Virginia <laughs> Beach. The reason, the re, so, so for a long time, when during the introductions, Cameron would say from Loverland, Virginia. Mm. When t- Tyler, you've been saying Loveland, when mm. in fact, neither of those places are, are correct. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I always well, thought there were like real joke. places. Yeah. It was, a, it, yeah. I, I think, I think it started because Virginia's for lovers. Yeah. And so I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. how yeah, it went that was from. my assumption. Yeah. So a little peek behind the curtain here, uh, a little, you know, <laughs> yeah. the inner inner workings here, which I, it's an opportunity to address the creepiest state slogan in no the country. <laughs> yeah, that's, Virginia that's is for lovers. <laughs> like, ew, like, seems like a lot of creep. Bo- I don't know if I want to go there. Like, you have the we've talked about. Don't mess with Texas. How it's very hostile. Like yeah. I'm not, I wasn't planning on messing with you. Like, why is your presumption that it, that my goal is to met? Like, Texas, don't worry, I'm not messing yeah. with yeah. you. Yeah. Like, yeah, that feels like a, that feels like an insecurity issue. They think yeah. it's tough. Think, it actually just uh, sounds defensive. I yeah. think Oklahoma's is kind of lame too, because it's like Oklahoma is okay, and you're like, like it, like it <laughs> just passes. Like, oh, Oklahoma's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's okay. I only call things okay like, when I really don't like them. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, How do you but, feel about this? It's okay. It's okay. Well, what's the new? What's the? I don't know if you guys saw this story this week. Uh, the I think it was the state of South Dakota. I it, I'm I may be incorrect, but they released a new slogan. Oh, and it's meth. We're on it. We're on it. Yeah, <laughs> I did see that. Not a state slogan. Not a state slogan. It, that would be bad. Like a campaign to raise awareness about about. Yeah. Still, <laughs> still, it might as well be the, the state problem. slogan. But yeah. meth. We're on it. And like. Which, from what I understand, Florida is giving them a run also, for their money on that one. Also, on that. <laughs> but, but this was a non-ironic thing. Like they, they, you know, and obviously since they unveiled it, and like the the uh, 
you know, imagery that accompanies this campaign. It's just like normal looking, looking people staring at the camera with the words <laughs> meth were on it. <laughs> and like, it's meant to say like, Hey, we're on this problem of meth. But if you are just like a random model who's like, you know, I, I'm doing like a stock photo shoot and you see your face on a billboard that says meth were on it. Like, yeah, I got to feel like you, you, you might be a little upset about that. Yeah, you know? I hope those weren't like I hope those weren't like stock photos. Like, I hope that wasn't oh, yeah. just something they pulled up a stocksy and now some <laughs> poor guy who's just posed I wasn't as a football player is uh, the face of <laughs> South Dakota's meth the- issue. <laughs> hey, I'll say that's that's a risk you take when you become a Shutterstock. Yeah, you never know. Uh, or <laughs> never know where you're end up. Yeah. Yeah. There were, yeah. there were, I, I grew up in uh, I grew up in in the state of Nebraska, obviously, and their state slogan there, which uh, I would uh, I'll qualify this by saying I don't think they've lived up to the promise of the slogan very much. But it's equality before the law, which strikes me as a very progressive like slogan. Wow, yeah. This feels like it's a lot to unpack yeah. in that, you know? Like the law may or may not be equal, but we will be. Yeah, it seems like why don't we just bring the law up to speed here? Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is the law not already there? <laughs> don't, yeah. don't, don't think too hard about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very interesting. I I now I live in uh now I live in Tennessee, the state slogan agriculture and commerce. Which is pretty <laughs> prosaic as state slogans go. Agriculture <laughs> and commerce. It's less a slogan very, and more like two words. Yeah. yeah <laughs> and it seems like, I, I mean, I'm no econ- economist, <laughs> but isn't isn't agriculture part of the, the commerce? Yeah, like, are, are they, would, are, is this just recreational agriculture or is it a commercial agriculture? I wasn't consulted, so I'm not really sure what the reasoning here was, if there was any, but that's just the slow. It's what we do. We got agriculture and we've got commerce, I guess. But what state doesn't have both of those things? Don't, JD, don't. Well, what state doesn't have meth? That didn't stop South Dakota. <laughs> what state isn't crawling with creepy people who call themselves lovers? And that's you can really, have that one. You can have that one. And that's really the reason that, I think it's a 30 route quote where Liz Lemon says, I never want to use the word lover unless it's preceded by the word meat and it's used in ordering a pizza, which I agree with. It's a really bad, it's a bad word. I don't like saying it's just one of those words I don't like saying and it's why I started saying Loveland and then it just became an ego thing when when the, the fans I, I, I listen to you I heard I hear you I'm not ignoring you I just don't want to do it listen if you're ever if you're ever introduced to a couple because some people you know have they, they, they introduce their significant other in very specific ways to mm-hmm. say this is my partner this is my husband my yeah, wife yeah, is, yeah, significant other, that, yeah. yeah that, that's fine but if anyone ever says hi I'm so and so. This is my lover. Get out of there as fast as you can. Because I guarantee you, they have a giant hole in their living room and they're just going to like, like, you are being being pulled into a scheme that you do not want to be a part of. Just get out of there. You will ever be duped into. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We have a, uh, we have a really exciting show today. We're talking to, uh, this is a, this was a really interesting conversation. Amanda Tyler, she's executive director for the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. She has started a movement 
movement called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. That's a subject that has been personally just very interesting and troubling for me to follow. Had a great conversation with her about Christian nationalism uh, and how it's impacting the country today. Plus, introducing a new segment. We're going to do a new artist spotlight now where we regularly bring you up to speed on some new artists who, that we're really enjoying. We think should be on your radar today. It's going to be Bethel's Dante Bow going to be joining us to talk a little bit about his music. Jesse, that was a conversation you had. Can't wait to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I'm excited for people to hear it. You know, he's kind of been someone that's been on our radar and my radar. Personally, you know, I think he first started releasing music uh, back in 2017, but recently, uh, you know, joined the Bethel Music Collective and has been releasing a lot more stuff on on YouTube and Instagram and is getting ready to release a new album. So excited for people to, to get, you know, a deeper introduction to his work later on. Do you, do you think at what stage in your, if you guys were going to just, just jettison it all and go into the music industry, try to break huh. it as a, as a big time, sure. as a big time star, which, which social media platforms are your priorities? Well, I would, the only way I would make it in the music industry is by some sort of funny novelty act, you know, like <laughs> oh, someone yeah. who's, who's, yeah. you know, maybe doing parody songs. Like a Lonely Island or a, a weird, <laughs> Which, uh, one like, of those. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's my only shot. I'm not going to make it by conventional means. Maybe I play funny instruments or something, you know, <laughs> and so I kind of feel like TikTok's my only, oh, the only thing I can short do. Every song is short like songs. nine seconds, you know, and I just really, it changed the game. I think that's my only shot. So I'd be How far it. away are we from the first pop star whose entire career, whose like discography is available via TikTok? Oh wow. It's it's not going to be that. It's it's I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. I am kind of surprised it hasn't happened yet just because that medium is so consumable, you know? Uh-huh. Like it, it 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 fosters content that is just so fun and easy to consume. You know. I really like, yeah, I really enjoy TikTok as it's the most recent app. I skipped a lo- bunch of them. I didn't, re- I never really got into Snapchat. Uh, WhatsApp flew over my head, but TikTok is too fun to really to stay off of. It's great. You can just, <laughs> you can just scroll it for. It's a, it's a problem. Yeah, it is a problem. I, but I, I'm, you know, I'm glad there's like a short video app because I feel like Vine was the one that died it was, too soon. Yeah, like uh, uh, it was sad. That was there was amazing. There was brilliant cinema on Vine. Yeah, <laughs> and just like the comic timing of a perfect Vine video was it was Unbeatable. something to behold. Unbeatable. You know? I don't remember the 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 tale of its demise. Was it they couldn't find funding? Was that what it was? Was it they couldn't monetize yeah, it? I think it was one of those private equity firms that like bought it and couldn't find a reason to keep it around, so just let it die. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I could tale has all this TikTok. Time? I'm not on TikTok, but is it? Um, is it the same way? Is it it's not American? Added? It's like a. It's owned by right. I think it's it's, it's I Russia, think it's right? Chi- I I thought it was. Chi- uh, it might be Russia. Yeah, one of those be. communists that, over there. Yeah, is that how they're going to take over <laughs> this election? <laughs> is TikTok? <laughs> I wouldn't, wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> they got they got the boomers via Facebook. They, yeah. they got millennials on Twitter. Now they just they're coming they're coming for Gen Z. First they hacked our elections and they got all our election data. Now. They got all our funny videos. What are we going to do? What are we, what are we well, this has gotten serious. Got? You know what South Dakota has? They're on it. We're going to take a quick break and we come back. The hot list. Somehow you counted it out. Your mind is made up to satisfy your ego. 
to Saturn Return by Howard. At the beginning of the podcast, you heard Oh Mama by Milky Chance. I like Milky Chance. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's been a good, it's been, it's been good. It's been good as as I've been working on my, my personal end of year, end of year favorite tunes. They've come up a few times on it. Do you guys keep an end of year? Like, do you make your own personal, like top 10 movies, albums, that sort of thing? I'm more inclined to do it with, with movies probably. You know, but it's interesting because we're coming up on the end of the decade. Here. Yeah, no, it's and getting, so, yeah, getting so I know, you know, we've started kind of creating some content along those lines and mm-hmm. I, I've been seeing it go around. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, before we get into the hot list, Tyler, you, you put together something on the website the other day that, you know, looked back at some of the best movies of the decade. So uh-huh. That's right. uh, as we're closing out, you know, uh, 2000, uh, you know, 11 to, uh, you know, 2000. 20 what what are your guys's opinions of what do you think is the best movie of the last 10 best years? movie of the debt last thing i wasn't ready see, for this this is see, going i on. have i have a hard time with with like bests and favorites and like yeah, rankings okay. same. Yeah, um same. Uh, it's it's too for me um come on I'd coward like, what's your favorite movie <laughs> the last 10 years? <laughs> no it's hard because i feel like they all have different like qualifiers and so like in different categories like i might really appreciate this film over here but then i like really just like flat out enjoyed this thing over here and so it's it's hard i don't do well when it comes to coming down and actually ranking yeah. like top five top tens i could say like oh yeah that would be theoretically in my top 10 but I, what are the differentiators between six and four? Like, I don't know. I can't do it. Yeah. It's I think too that, hard. I think that, and I, I don't know that I would call this my favorite movie of the decade, but I, I, I think, I think I might've said this uh, over, uh, this might've been a tweet take of mine that I, that I shoveled out of the, the take minds earlier this week. But I think social network might be the most, like the most movie of the decade. Yeah. Came out 2010, top of the decade. And I don't know if any movie has as accurately sort of predicted the arc of the last 10 years mm-hmm. and stayed and maintained its relevance as well as that movie did just in terms of anticipating how our relationships would go, what would happen to not only Facebook, but to a lot of these uh, big tech companies and the ways that it, that we changed in the ways that we relate to each other. It feels like an extremely prescient movie that we don't always, uh, you don't, you don't get those kinds of movies very often. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, so that would be a favorite. I don't know, but I would say I would nominate that one for maybe most, uh, uh, pardon the pun, the most relevant movie of the decade. I think it's the one that is most, yeah, uh, that people will look back on as like, of a film that provides context to the uh-huh. era, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah I, I think that's fair. Maybe in kind of the same way that Blade Runner did for the eighties. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I think these are, there's maybe some recency bias, but I, I kind of, I think both of Jordan Peele's movies, sure. I've really sure. appreciated yeah, and enjoyed because one, they've like, they've elevated a genre, you know, this kind of horror thriller genre and, and and kind of showed what it's capable of. But both of them were able to weave in such interesting social themes and, and ask big questions, but in doing it in a way that was super entertaining and just they're just fun movies to 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 go see. I know? loved I love both us and get out like yeah, like hook them into my veins. I thought they were great. <laughs> us. I'm on it. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just to go back to my thing, like I'm looking over at a list of like all these movies over yeah, the past ten yeah. years, and you've got like something that was an absolute awesome ride, like like the latest Mad Max. Yeah. Fury Road. Fury Road like, would be Fury on my Road top. Was just, would be on my like Mount Rushmore of movies of the decade. It was just epic. J- just but so then, fun. I mean, and then you have like right, like Social Network is in there. Like this really serious like thinker, Aaron Sorkin written like slow burn of a piece, and and uh, or even something like I I really enjoyed like Ex Machina that was out this mm-hmm. like yeah, within the past ten awesome. years and all this stuff and. It's just, I don't know. This is why I have a hard time because I just, they all feel so unique. And I mean, I'll say it. I even really liked Moana. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I, I feel musical. like visually, visually Moana was, is, was so different than anything that I feel like Disney animation's done. I, I agree. And it, and it went back to like an old formula of their like old musical formula, more like similar to like Beauty and the Beast or whatever. And it had this really great theme of like knowing your identity some real bangers and, and all on that stuff. soundtrack. Boom. Too. Some real you know, bangers. so like it's just hard. How are you going to sit there and be like, what's better Moana or Fury Road? You're just like, ah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so apples. And, it's not apples and oranges. Isn't even quite right. It's like, no, it's, it's like, like apples and a, and a dump truck. You can't. Yeah. Right, Jesse, like, what, how about you? What would you, what would yours be? Jesse? I, I don't know. Well, I, like I said, I think us and, and get out are, mm-hmm. uh, are two, two that I've particularly enjoyed. I'm trying to think back of like any comedies that really jumped out at me. You know, if when I, I was could, putting the list together, bridesmaids came up as yeah, a, that yeah. one was, that one launched a couple of careers and definitely, uh, set the tone for kind of how we, what kind of comedies came after it yeah uh in terms of just like the style and the it, it kind of i think after the for the, a couple of years of uh, the hangover bridesmaids kind of corrected course corrected on that tone for comedies mm-hmm. and maybe even restructured the way we thought about like the judd apatow comedies and created yeah. something a little different yeah, I mean, the great thing about Bridesmaids is it's still super rewatchable scene to scene. It's, it's like one of those funny, movies. Yeah, it's very you funny. Can, you can jump into Bridesmaids. Like if, if, if it's just like on TV or something or you go over somebody's house and they're watching it, uh, you can jump in at any scene and scene to scene. It is really funny and it's got heart, you know, uh-huh. like it's a yeah. movie that very sweet it, movie. It isn't just, uh, you know, kind of raunchy gags, which there are plenty of, you know what I mean? Like if that's what if that's the kind of but but there's a real sentimental feel to the movie about about friendship and, and life and, uh, you know, commitment. So, yeah, I, I agree. Bridesmaids probably is is up near the top of my list. Uh, we're going to narrow we're going to narrow the scope of our exploration from the decade to the last week. It's time for Tyler, I'd like to say that that was a professional transition yeah, really right was. there. I'm getting better. That grass. was like Congrats. rock star level. Well done. It's, it's taken well a while. Done. I appreciate that. I appreciate it. You know, I'm always I'm always working, trying to improve, trying to be better. You know, you, you've always got room to grow. So thanks yeah. for noticing, JD. <laughs> Coming to number five this week. For the first time, this is cool. For the first time, half of all TV episodes were directed by women or people of color. A new report from the Directors Guild of America has some rare good news about diversity in Hollywood, showcasing some major gains in the TV industry. In the 2018 to 2019 season of television, a full 50% of all TV episodes were directed by women or people of color. That's an industry first. 
It's an 8% jump from the previous period and more than double the number of just five years ago when the percentage stood at 21%. According to the study, 31% of TV episodes were directed by women and 27% were directed by people of color. That's a jump of 50% and 40% respectively. Uh, DGA President Thomas Schlamm said, Inclusion has been a priority for our guild for a very long time as we've pushed the studios, networks, and producers to do better in their hiring. While change has been glacial in past years, we're pleased and incredibly encouraged to see the recent commitment undertaken by the industry. Uh, surprisingly enough to me, Disney led the way with women and people of color directing um. a full 57% of all their TV output. Home box office was right behind 56% of their year. And 20th Century Fox was in third place with 52%. Um, this is weird because we report on this quite a bit over at Relevant. And usually it's very bad news when you, we take a look at these studies. It's been uh, kind of d- discouraging uh, in terms of race representation, female representation, uh, obviously on screen, it's always been kind of a struggle, but it, even a bigger struggle has been behind, has been in leadership positions like directing, producing. So to yeah. see this, to see things jump by tw- by almost double in five years, that is really wild. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you've seen you've seen a similar trend in, uh, you know, the film industry. You know, I know it's something we talked about when we had like Ava DuVernay in, mm-hmm. yeah, in yeah. the magazine when she did, uh, you know, her film uh, A Wrinkle in Time was, you know, I think at the at the time was the first movie with a budget of more than 100 million dollars to be directed. by one of yeah, yeah. And she's gone on, you know, um, her Netflix series. Um, it is unbelievable. It's when they see us, right? Yeah, uh, when they see us. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah. really great. Some of yeah. the best TV of the year, for sure. Yeah. And now she's got another. And that's what what I think DuVernay has done that has been very difficult to replicate is that she has really launched a, a long career in this because a lot of these, as I was reading the, this, uh, about more about this study, uh, a lot of these are kind of one-offs. They're people who are brought in to direct and then they, they don't necessarily, that's not leveraged into a longer career. They, they, they don't make names. They don't jump to features. Um, and that's what the DGA was saying is really the next step here is to take this from being here. You can direct this TV show to here. You can help us chart the path of a episode of a season of television, and yeah. here's some opportunities for you to work on your own scripts and and to to go into bigger, longer projects. That's something that Ava DuVernay has done. That's actually been kind of rare for women and people of color who go to Hollywood and try to try to make it over there. It's tough for anybody. Obviously, much tougher for people who are underrepresented in that industry. But that's still yeah. this is uh, this is good news. Yeah. Coming to number four this week, Amazon has already greenlit a second season of its Lord of the Rings show. The streaming outlet has confirmed that it will commit to a second season of a show based on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, months before the first season is likely to even debut. The show reportedly will take place in Middle-earth before the event of the Fellowship of the Ring. Other than that, details have been scarce. According to Deadline, the early green light means the seasons will likely be filmed at least in part at the same time. That's good news for fans who probably won't have to wait too long between seasons. From Deadline, quote, The early season two pickup is good news for fans as it will allow for a shorter break between the end of season one and the premiere of season two on Prime Video. But still no word of a release date. I... I, I, Amazon has paid a fortune to <laughs> most ex- yeah. most expensive TV show of all time, right? Yeah, yeah, and and uh, yeah, <laughs> like I appreciate the legacy of 
J.R.R. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and the Hobbit and 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 mm-hmm. all of his work. I think it's been incredibly important, especially in sort of the the legacy of Christian literary achievements, right? Like it stands on its own. Yeah, I mean, it's not as directly allegorical to faith as like the the Chronicles of Narnia, uh-huh. um, but it's still looked at as a, a pretty significant work by a, an author whose faith was a major part of his inspiration. Yeah. All that said, I am I, I have no more appetite for this man. Are you done? Like, yeah. Are you done? I mean, I, like I can't even watch. I, I did weren't no. there like three Hobbit movies too? Never did, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, saw, oh, I caught wow. the first one. I watched the first one. I'm like, there's no way I'm, yeah. I'm sitting through <laughs> yeah. a and all of them are like three hours. So it's yeah. like just three life three hour movies. Life is short, man. Yeah, because well, there were four Lord of the Rings movies, right? Like the three. three. There were three Lord I thought of the they Rings I thought they split the last one into no, two. They no, they did no, that no, with the, the Hobbit. This was yeah, this was okay. before this was before so, they started doing that stuff. So, yeah. so there were three or Lord of the Harry Rings Potter's. movies and three uh, Hobbit three movies. Three Hobbit movies, yeah. Right, which doesn't make sense because That's there enough. Th- we got enough. The Hobbit was a very short book. <laughs> exactly. And you know, like the Lord of the Rings are, are like th- three, um, I, I don't know, like sections of one massive piece of Tome. literature. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's huge. I think and the, publishers, the, even, is like the a, publishers even fought Tolkien because he wanted them to be released as a single book. Right, and, and they said nobody will buy it, so right. they split reluctantly split it into three. Right, and they're and they're big on their own, and then you have the Hobbit, which was kind of like a kids' story, and then you take the Hobbit, and then you add all this other extra stuff in there from like all of these other like musings and writings and little like I don't know fan what, fiction not listen, fan what, fiction what, what, but just like weird nerdy stuff and then you get these three hours of like ridiculousness. Well, that, and it's, it's like just, what I was lost the plot. Well, I'm watching the, you know, that I watched the one Hobbit movie, right? And mm-hmm. I'm like, we're 45 minutes in and they're singing and doing the dishes right now. That was a weird journey moment. is so far from even have started. <laughs> like, like we haven't even left the Shire yet. Like we're not even that we haven't even left Bilbo or whatever is Frodo's house or whatever. They're literally <laughs> doing dishes. Like I'm 45 <laughs> minutes into this and they are still doing dishes. I am not going. I, I, I'm i done. And like, I know what I know. Amazon's goal here is to is to make create lots of money. Yeah, it, it's oh, to make it's lots good. of money to create something sort of like Game of Thrones level. Um, Clearly uh, production quality. And hopefully, you know, it's got this big built in fan base. But man, we already have so much Lord of the Rings stuff. I, I don't know. I, I just well, and I think too, like Lord, uh, both the Lord of the Rings with the Hobbit movies, and then also the last few seasons of Game of Thrones. The thing that, like, I don't know. I feel like they would learn by now is that when you are trying to develop something off of such a beloved IP, but you don't have actual source material to base it on, mm-hmm. it gets real dicey real yeah. fast. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. the best parts of those three Hobbit movies are the probably 90 minutes of things that were actually in the book. <laughs> and if they were to recut it to just contain those 90 minutes, it actually had been a, a really fun film, but like all the extra and the same with like the last few seasons of, of game of Thrones. It's like you start going too far away from that source material and just start writing it the way you would write some other show or whatever. Not only do you get fan backlash, but even the people like I never read 
Game of Thrones, but I watched the series and you can just tell like something's off here. Yeah. There's not the, like the build up, the something else. And, and as a whole series, I still, uh, you know, appreciate what it was able to accomplish, but like to do the same thing with Lord of the Rings to think like, Oh guys, it's got this massive fan base. Yeah. And they are going to tear you to shreds. Yeah. yeah a yeah. very loyal, very uh, cantankerous fan right. base who have a like, lot probably, of time on their hands. It's, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the nerdiest and angriest of all fan bases. The right. Lord yeah. of the Rings. You're not messing They're with gonna, people. They are going to flip over their mom's coffee table when this thing comes out. <laughs> well, it's like, it, it, I mean, this is how fanatical they are. Okay. So like Topher Grace. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, the yeah. best known as the the star of of uh, uh, that '70s show. He's, he's done some good works, and then he was great in Black Klansman um, recently. But uh, you know, he's he's a he's a big time Inkling Tolkien fan, mm-hmm. and he famously cut down the three Hobbit movies into one singular two hour movie. Just to show it can be done like they could have done this in two hours. In fact, I will use their footage and I will show. And so you can actually go online and watch Topher Grace's two hour cut of The Hobbit. So that's great. That That's a I, I would say I would have leveled all these same criticisms uh, early on when I heard the report, the the news, the announcement about The Watchmen. Which so far, JD and I've been texting about that one every week. It's it's very good so far. It I've is been really good. Uh, so. Yeah. I'm not saying it can't be done. It obviously can yeah. be done. It's just why does it need to be done? Well, <laughs> yeah. and I think that's that's a that's a problem that you get with prequels in general as opposed to sequels. Because mm-hmm. like you could in theory create a what if scenario that's fun to play in, but the what if scenarios are a lot harder to play in when you yeah. have to. Yeah, end exactly. at a certain conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we already know how this ends. Mm-hmm. We've, we've mm-hmm. literally right. seen 12 hours of these. Right. <laughs> like at the very end of Sauron or Sauron going to be like, and I will make rings now. <laughs> You're like, Oh, coming number three this week, Coldplay won't tour their new album for environmental reasons. Okay, so this is interesting. The band just released their album. It's called Everyday Life. However, frontman Chris Martin told the BBC, quote, we're not touring this album. We're taking time over the next year or two to work out how our tour can not only be sustainable, but how it can be actively beneficial. For the now, the band has planned just two concerts, which we broadcast on YouTube from Jordan. Martin told the BBC just how difficult touring efficiently can be. He said the hardest thing is the flying side of things. But for example, our dream is to have a show with no single use plastic to have it largely solar powered. We've done a lot of big tours at this point. How do we turn it around? So it's not so much taking as giving. Um, what do you think? I'm down. I, I think this is cool. I, I can see, I can see there being some like kind of cynical, snarky response to this, but yeah. I, I can appreciate the, first of all, as somebody who's not really been interested in Coldplay in a couple of years, uh, gave the new album a spin this morning. It was pretty good. I, I actually, I, I, I liked it quite a bit. I thought so too. I mean, they have really a lot of interesting, form. yeah, uh, of kind of a lot of interesting sort of like international influences. It seems like on this yeah. record. Yeah. Um, I, I, I liked it. All right. And this is, uh, I, I think this is really admirable. And if a band, at Coldplay's level starts thinking this way, then hopefully it can also inspire some other, uh, I think a lot of times change. Obviously it's easier for Coldplay to do this. They don't have right. to tour. They they have yeah. the, they have the money and the, the leeway to be creative and how they think about touring an album like this, but it could also help lead to some innovations in just how the music industry thinks about touring as a whole, trying to find more, uh, more greener, better ways to tour. I think that's really cool. 
Yeah. And I think it also opens up a conversation about other means of essentially like entertainment that uh, that have massive environmental footprints and that uh-huh. only exist because we are fortunate enough to live in a culture where people have disposable incomes that can be spent doing recreational things. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, so uh, like no one's life is going, it's not like, Hey, you know, we're not going to, um, you, you know, like this, this business is going to shut down or, or you can't go get a meal here or, you know, this industry is changing. No one's life is going to be, uh, you know, dramatically affected because they can't go see Coldplay play this year. Uh, but yeah. I think also it opens up a bigger, I don't know. There's a lot of youth pastors out there that might disagree <laughs> with you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? They won't tour for I a feel, year. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of, there's like a lot of like, you know, couples who, who are like super into like Starbucks and, uh, you know, uh, family portraits and stuff like that, that are going to miss out on a date night this year because yeah. Coldplay is not coming to their town. Coldplay is the ultimate like mom and dad date night. You know, Coldplay's coming. Going to put off Baby Moon for another year before yeah. Coldplay does the two. <laughs> but, but all I have to say is like, when you think about it in that context, like, you know, no one's life is, is going to be dramatically affected because this doesn't happen. This is purely... Yeah. Uh, a luxury to be able to go to a concert and to cancel that luxury in order to come up with solutions that are environmentally friendly and the, and the, the degree of kind of personal responsibility that takes on, on the members of, of the band, I think also opens up interesting conversations about what other luxuries do we indulge in as a culture that is, you know, may have had negative environmental impacts that we can reevaluate. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. I like personally, I love, I love the NBA, right? I, I love watching basketball games, but every night that I watch NBA, I know those players right after the game are boarding a plane mm-hmm. and flying to a different city and, you know, uh, and then, you know, getting on buses and in these massive stadiums. And there is an environmental cost to things like that, that, we consume purely for entertainment value. And and I'm not saying that makes sports or makes touring or anything like that wrong, but I do think it's interesting that people are starting to have the conversation now of like, is what we get worth the cost? And, you know, Coldplay sort of putting their money where their mouth here uh, is, I I think it's a positive thing and hopefully we'll, we'll, open up a lot of interesting conversations. Yeah. Well, especially in a world when we will like build an entire city for the Olympics or like the World Cup or something that all these massive structures, all this infrastructure goes into it to then never be used really ever again. Yeah. And so where like even the Olympics nowadays is moving away from the kind of like world tour and it's becoming more of these um, like maybe countries that are wanting to get a more positive PR spin on themselves are starting to host them. Um, and, and so you get these scenarios where all of their resources are because of what you have to build. And you got all these athletes flying from across the world. It's not that I like the Olympics. I think it's a fun time. It's the only time that I watch cable television, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's, um, when like CS, like NBC, you know, Stops doing business coverage, you know, so that you can watch a weird rifle shootout, you know, right. that, like some weird snow sport. I'm here you know, for it. it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
the Olympics are one that, that there's going to be a reckoning there because the, it's not just environmental stuff, like the humanitarian cost oh, of the Olympics. Totally. Just every yeah. year you hear those reports and you're like, how is this? It's, it's, yeah, how are we still doing this? People this die. way at least. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's a uh, really wild. Yeah. And then number two this week, Heim released a gorgeous new single called Hallelujah. Like several of their other recent videos, this one is directed by acclaimed filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson. In a statement, Este Heim explained the song is about the power of community. She said, quote, this song is for anyone struggling with chronic illness and the people around us who we truly rely on for help and guidance. Here's a clip. Give me direction when it is hard to find Three words, one life Now and then I can lean my back to yours Traveling like our feet don't touch the floor I've been pretty on board with these Heim songs so far. And, and I think the videos have all been really... I mean, if you're going to do a music video, you... you pays to have somebody like P.T. Anderson, which is a very strange... I guess they're all friends. That's the only reason I can imagine he's still doing these... He does all these videos for them. But, uh... But man, that is a very uh, uh, not particularly uh, like an award-winning but not commercially popular filmmaker to get to do your music videos. Yeah, uh, I oh, I mean, he's one of the greatest living filmmakers on earth right now. I, I yeah. love his I love his stuff, uh, but I'll know that he's uh, he's can be a little bit uh, uh, hard. It's hard to find an entry point if you haven't seen a PT Anderson. Like the master can be just a little uh, yeah. obtuse. Two sometimes, but I love. I mean, I lo- I would say uh, I would say he's made two or so of the best movies of the decade. Yeah, with return to what, that talk with there will be blood and mm-hmm. the master. Is that what and you the say? Ma- yeah, and the master. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I'm th- you throw I mean, uh, Phantom Thread in there. I'd, yeah. I'd say Phantom Thread is is as good as anything else he's ever done. But yeah, really his, cool his song. whole catalog. Yeah, it is a cool song. I I I like the idea of the juxtaposition of the word and I and concept of hallelujah, like the reverence mm-hmm. that goes into that word in particular and such like, it's also just like a beautiful word when you hear it sung. Hallelujah. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's like a, it's like a, a it's lovely word. It's very like aesthetically some, pleasing. Yeah. But, but the juxtaposition of using that while singing about community and singing about people who support you, I mm-hmm. think has, really interesting implications, no matter what your religious beliefs are, that even if, you know, you don't use the word hallelujah in the religious sense, um, you know, the way maybe it was, has originally been intended, but use it to recognize something holy uh, and Uh something reverent, which I think friendship and family, those things are holy and reverent. I, I think that's what, man, this song, I've listened to the song, you know, 20 times since since it mm-hmm. released this week and it's just mm-hmm. it's just a beautiful song it's really cool and number one this week since signing colin kaepernick to an endorsement deal nike has increased 26 billion dollars <laughs> in value oh my god <laughs> it's been about 14 months since the athletic brand signed the activists and nfl free agent to a new deal and unveiled their new just do it campaign at first making kaepernick who became a polarizing figure 
following demonstrations against racial injustice during pregame national anthems was seen as a controversial move by some of Kaepernick's critics. But according to Yahoo Sports, Nike stock rose over 18% since the announcement of the Kaepernick deal, adding a whopping $26.2 billion to the company's bottom line. Next month, they will release special icon Kaepernick shoes and jerseys. Here is a clip from the Kaepernick ad that launched the whole campaign. If people say your dreams are crazy, if they laugh at what you think you can do, good. Stay that way. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. Don't try to be the fastest runner in your school or the fastest in the world. Be the fastest ever. Don't picture yourself wearing OBJ's jersey. Picture OBJ wearing yours. Don't settle for homecoming queen or linebacker. Do both. Lose 120 pounds and become an Iron Man after beating a brain tumor. Don't believe you have to be like anybody to be somebody. If you're born a refugee, don't let it stop you from playing soccer for the national team at age 16. Don't become the best basketball player on the planet. Be bigger than basketball. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. So not, uh, I mean, if it was a risk, it paid off. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> at first when I read that, I'm like, okay, that's got to be a typo. Twenty six billion. And that's only an eighteen percent jump. Like twenty six yeah. billion makes eight. That's crazy. But eighteen percent. Think about think about any company increasing eighteen, almost twenty percent in value in fourteen months. Like mm-hmm. th- to 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 increase that much in value in that short amount of time is is astonishing you know it's crazy and to think back i because i remember when this campaign was unveiled last fall i it it came out september of last year and you know there were people just because nike was partnering publicly with colin kaepernick who you know is some some people find controversial uh for the method in which he has has protested racial injustice and police brutality you know there were people on twitter like burning their nikes oh, and, yeah. and yeah. it was yeah. and in the and in the you know which does nothing to hurt nike <laughs> like oh, yeah. you already you, bought the shoes you paid, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you paid the for bag. the shoes right. and, and it, you're probably gonna buy another pair at some point you know <laughs> but like <laughs> like let's just be real here okay you're probably buying another pair and you're probably wearing it those people who burn their nikes are probably wearing nikes right now but like you know in the in the direct after people are like oh i can't believe nike did this this is you know look they're uh you know causing all this all this backlash and they're isolating you know their consumers is like no they know exactly what they're doing they're aligning with someone who is saying important things and uh you know is is an interesting figure in pop culture and is is doing profound things in the world of activism and it paid off to the tune of twenty six billion dollars, and it it's, it lends some of some of the uh, I, I I I completely support Kaepernick and what he did. I could see this lending some uh, some like 
legitimacy, perceived legitimacy to the cynicism of people who said this was just a business decision for Nike. They don't actually care. They're just thinking about the bottom dollar in the end, which I think that's possible. Like Nike's a company. They, they want to make money. That's, sure. what that's what their job is. They, they make money. I don't think that invalidates what Kaepernick did, what his stand is. He has been completely above board well, in and all of this. It would be a massive risk. I mean, that's a massive oh, sure. risk to take, even if it is just dollar signs. Oh, yeah. Like, because yeah. when it first dropped, like you guys were talking about, like there was a massive backlash. Mm-hmm. And so to, to hang on to it, I'm honestly still surprised, like pleasantly surprised that he's still relevant to the conversation still because yeah. it's been a while and he hasn't like played in the NFL for a while and stuff. And they're they're hanging on to it. And, and I think it's it's maybe a positive sign that people are still engaged about the conversation enough for that him to still make that kind of a, a bump to their, to their bottom line. And yeah. I think that people just don't care. You know, like people are this week, we're predicting the end of Chick-fil-A because of what they like, Oh, wait, so you're going to lose all your, you're going to lose all your best fans after that. Like people don't care. That's not how, yeah, we'll that's not really how this way. works. Everyone hates Chick-fil-A until Sunday and then they can't have it. And then yeah. they're angry. And then that next Monday, their stock goes back. They up. He, yes. They, they, they hear someone playing the Kanye song. And they're like, I'm kind of hungry. I haven't actually had Chick-fil-A lemonade in quite, know, I mean, quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I still don't like them. Yeah, yeah, I don't like them, but I'm going to get one more chicken sandwich. Just one more. <laughs> the sandwich, yeah. the sandwich yeah. is good. The sandwich yeah. is good. Popeye's I won't sold order out. the fries. I'll just get the sandwich. I'll show them. And the, the Babylon Bee, which I don't like. I think they've taken a turn in recent years You know, with their... Uh, Ever since Adam Ford... Yeah, Left you know, they, they, they've, they've, in my opinion, had a lot of like, you know, problematic joke headlines and, and, but whatever, you know, it's, they can, they're, they can do whatever. But they actually, credit where credit is due, they had a really funny headline this week. Yeah, for people who somehow don't know, they're, they're a, a, a satirical site that, started by just lampooning kind of church culture, but it's moved mm-hmm. more yeah, into, yeah. Uh, you know, their, you know, political ideology, you know, be more a part of their work. But they had a great headline this week, and it's persecuted church in China praying for Christian believers who aren't sure where they can get a good Christian chicken sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, credit where credit's due. Like, it's true. It's like, this is, you know, you had like people like, you know, Albert Muller or, uh, you know, Mike Huckabee. Yeah, 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 Yeah. all the acting as if Chick-fil-A giving to different Christian charities now and changing up how they're doing charitable giving is this assault on Christian values that how dare, how dare our fried chicken restaurant not take a social and theological stand? Like how dare they not have a nuanced understanding of a complex, you know, like it's just like baffling that. Yeah. What, what consumers will get outraged oh, yeah. about, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And I think it's, it, you know, it drives clicks. It, it, uh, there's, I think a lot of these people like they, they smell a lot of clicks in the culture war. And this is something that's just sort of expected. Like everyone's playing their parts pretty dutifully in this whole thing. They, yeah, they, they wake up and they read what role they're supposed to play and they can go in and, and make it happen. And it's just been sort of disappointing to see the, how over the top and dramatic it's a fried chicken restaurant for goodness yeah. sakes. Yeah. But anyway, that, that's all, that's all aside of it. Good, good on, uh, good on Kaepernick. We are going to take another quick break here. When we come back, Amanda Tyler is going to join us. What can they say what they want? 
to uh, Spider by Twin Peaks. Well, Amanda Tyler is executive director of BJC. She leads the organization as it upholds the historic Baptist principle of religious liberty, defending the free exercise of religion and protecting against its establishment by government. She also founded Christians Against Christian Nationalism. As they explain, Christian nationalism is not only behind the push for bills that advance a revisionist historical view of the United States and promote government-sponsored religious exercise, it also has inspired religious hate crimes, arson, and deadly attacks on houses of worship. Uh, I got to talk to Amanda Tyler about Christian nationalism. I was very, very interested in this topic, and I was really impressed by the movement that she has started to build of uh, Christians taking a lead on pushing back against Christian nationalism ideas. And uh, the first thing I wanted to ask her is how Christian nationalism even kind of appeared on her radar as the leader of this religious liberty organization. Here's what she said. So Christian nationalism is not new. I think in our country, we can date it back hundreds of years. Uh, BJC has been around for 83 years. And so we've definitely seen it uh, at different times in our history. You know, I think there are certain periods where, you know, instances of Christian nationalism go up. I can point specifically to like the 1950s, you know, immediately after uh, uh, World War II. In more recent memory, in more recent history, we have seen more instances of Christian nationalism, some of them very extreme uh, and violent and even deadly in attacks on houses of worship in Pittsburgh and San Diego, around the world in New Zealand, uh, but also uh, less extreme, more mundane examples, things like a proliferation of bills pushing for the posting of In God We Trust in classrooms or pushing for Bible literacy classes. We Are you referring saying, to, uh, to Project Blitz there? Exactly. Yeah. So, so that, you know, these instances coming from Project Blitz, which we do think show Christian national ideology in that, in that legislative scheme, uh, we we felt like there was a need, an opportunity for Christians who are concerned about the merging of American and Christian identities to have an, a place to take a public stand and to express their concern about rising Christian nationalism. Yeah, I, I feel like this is something we've kind of been covering for a while. This, <clears throat> I mean, it, it's always, as she kind of, as Amanda describes, you know, there's always been it seems like in recent history, a push by some Christians to use the majority power that Christians have kind of held, you know, the, the quote unquote moral majority of, of mm -hmm. from back in the day to push Christian agendas politically and socially. But it does seem like <clears throat> there has been an uptick in in recent years, particularly under the current uh, administration. Yeah, and that was something that that uh, really motivated her to to start this movement to push back against that. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, I mean, it's gotten to the point where literally, I mean, President Trump campaigned on right, you know, telling people that when he's president, people will 
you know, implying somehow be forced to say Merry Christmas again. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's infused political rhetoric to such a degree that even minor displays of that conflation of Christian values and political policy can really rally a, a certain part of of that voting base. And that's what I wanted to ask her about, because there is this sort of Christian nationalism isn't a it, you don't get a card and sign up to be a Christian nationalist. It, it's sort of a vague movement. And so I wanted to know it, there, there, across the spectrum between things like um, like. Uh, new laws mandating certain uh, adherence to different uh, interpretations of religious principles, all the way to some more violent extremist attacks. How does she define Christian nationalism? So there's a lot of different understandings or definitions of Christian nationalism. How we define it in the statement is that it's a political ideology that seeks to merge Christian and American identities distorting both the Christian faith and America's constitutional democracy. I think it's important to to label it as a political ideology, certainly, um, and something distinct from Christianity itself. Now, there are certainly informed by Christianity in some places, but um, this idea that we needed to state that not all Christians are Americans and not all Americans are Christians, um, and a concern that sometimes the the conflating of those two things and the conflating of religious authority with political authority raises concerns of idolatry and the importance of understanding those as distinct. Also, to be sure that we distinguish nationalism and Christian nationalism is not the same thing as being is patriotism or being patriotic. That we can be and we are. I I am a patriot. You know, we, we can be patriotic and still um, understand that we don't need to, um, you know, uh, minimize our religious convictions or somehow uh, make those fit into a particular uh, political affiliation or nationalistic affiliation. Yeah, I, I, I think she, she makes an important distinction there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Where, where were you all where th- there's a difference between being patriotic and wanting to serve your country and love your country and also realizing that patriotism shouldn't be on the same level as zeal for your faith. Like, you know, whenever you, you see you know, a cross draped in like an American flag that should be, I mean, I get like the intent of like symbolism like that. Like you, mm-hmm. you, 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 mm-hmm. you, you want, I mean, as Christians, we believe we're, we're supposed to bring God's kingdom to earth that all, you know, hopefully expose all people to the good news of the gospel, including the country that we happen to have been born in or live in. Um, but to kind of make those symbols, you know, like have equal place in how we, how we view them in terms of like reverence and passion, that that's a a distortion. And in some ways we, often you find those symbols used to sort of uh, prop up the empire, right? Uh, And I think it was, it was Rachel Held Evans who pointed out how strange it would be to the early church to see the the cross and and their their Christian symbols used in support of a government because it was understood so differently 
by them at the time as something that was extremely subversive and that was very dangerous to people who were in any sort of political power and uh, came to to remove those things from power. So the 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 conflation in America obviously has been very good to Christianity in some very superficial ways, but has been very damaging to it in yeah. some more meaningful ways. Um, I thought I thought this was super interesting. I, I wanted to know from Amanda. Uh, you don't necessarily have to call yourself a Christian nationalist to be to be sort of uh, seduced by it. it. It can be a very subtle thing, and in in many ways, it's something that has infected a lot of our understanding of patriotism and Christianity without our really even realizing that it's happened or that it's something that's not totally true to uh, accurate understanding of Christianity. Here's what she said about that. We are careful here and throughout the entire statement, we talk about Christian nationalism, and it is such a pervasive ideology in our culture. It's been around for hundreds of years, and I don't. I think that anyone just living in our society has been impacted by Christian nationalism, and it's all along a spectrum. You know, it's not just the extreme examples of violence, but much more mundane examples. So. We are not about pointing fingers or labeling people as Christian nationalists. We want to raise awareness about how Christian nationalism shows up in our society, in our houses of worship, in our places of of government, and to start questioning some of the assumptions that underlie that and have conversations about it and try to start chipping away and, and uncovering some of this ideology. and. And really to have civil conversations about this. And I think anytime you start labeling people as Christian nationalists, that is not a productive way to engage in civil conversation. We're, we're really a, uh, more about, um, you know, just opening our eyes and understanding more about how Christian nationalism is showing up in our world today. Yeah, and I think that's a really important w- way to look at it and has informed my understanding of Christian nationalism a lot is that this this isn't a label this isn't a re- it's it's a matter of of works not faith it's you don't necessarily have to believe that only Christians are good Americans to find your understanding of Amer- being American and being a Christian infected by this way of thinking. Uh, so that, that it's a really helpful conversation. It's something that, uh, that I think it's very important for especially, uh, people who are Christians in America to have a good understanding of because it is creeping into positions of power and in some very, uh, m- bolder ways than it has in past years. So I really appreciate Amanda's stand on that. If you want to read more about it, uh, we will, we have a link to the statement that she wrote and you can sign it as well over on relevantmagazine.com. That was Amanda Tyler. Next up, our new artist spotlight. This could be Listening to Gimme Gimme by Drama. Well, Dante Bow joined the Bethel Music Collection as a worship leader and songwriter in June of 2019 and can be seen leading worship at Bethel Church and on tour with the collective at events like Heaven Come Conference and Worship You on campus. Dante released his first single, Potter and Friend, in January 2017. 
as a preview to his album, Son of a Father, debuted a few months later. The album debuted at number five on iTunes charts and number 21 on Billboard. His latest single is called The Giant is Dead. We recently talked to Dante about his career and some of his breakout songs, or rather, Jesse, you did, right? Yeah, yeah. This was a really fun uh, uh, interview. It was a fun segment to put together. So basically, we want to we want to take the opportunity because we get to talk to a lot of uh, a lot of different artists, and you know, kind of I, one of the things we want to do is is give them some exposure. And so uh, you know, kind of a it'll be kind of an ongoing on segment uh, where we spotlight some some artists that we're really yeah. excited about. And like as, as Tyler, you just read he he you know, first started putting out music back in 2017, but he's getting ready to release a, a new album that he's working on. You know, he's a member of the Bethel collective. So yeah, Dante talked to us about uh, what it's like being part of the Bethel music collective. And also, uh, you know, kind of gave us behind the scenes uh, looks at a couple of his breakout songs. These are like my heroes. Cause I mean, um, when I did, when I, when I actually started leading worship, you know, obviously, like so many of us, we look to Bethel or Jesus Culture or like Hillsong. So I really admired Bethel and Stephanie and Jen and Brian and Amanda so much. So when I finally had the opportunity, I remember my first session, I want to say, was with Stephanie Grayson, which is like one of our really close friends now. I'm actually in Nashville about to write with her today. But Anyway, like, I'm in that session, like, shaking, like, oh, my God, like, I can't believe I'm in the room with, I guess, a hero of mine. And um, I can honestly say each person, they're exactly who they are off-platform. I mean, on-platform and off-platform. They literally are the most authentic people. And I think that's what the movement thrives on, is just authentic pursuit of Jesus. And you get that with the spontaneous stuff and the unscripted things that they do on platform in the public. And um, it's the same way in a writing session. It's very unscripted and very um, raw and authentic. And you don't really know what's going to happen or even if you're going to get a song because sometimes the conversations over overtake. Yeah, the community factor is just crazy powerful. I want to start with uh, Take Me Back. And you wrote this about the, on, on Instagram. You wrote, it's a song I hope will be sang far beyond this moment, a song that we will sing throughout our history with God. What is it about this song that you think in particular is kind of, I feel like it's really connecting with people. And, and it's really, it seems like this is, you know, a song and words and, and lyrics that people are really clinging to. What, tell me a little bit of the backstory about Take Me Back and why you think it's kind of having an impact. That song is just a constant reminder that, hey, when the storm's out on the ocean and the violent wind gets to blowing, all I want you to do is just take me back. Remind me. Keep reminding me. Take me back to my first love. That's pretty much why I think it should be sang throughout our history because there's going to be multiple things that pop up that maybe take us by surprise or things that are things that, you know what I mean? Like necessarily like we just feel, we just feel out of control and, um, I think 
it's important for us to just constantly have that 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 heart, that prayer that's, that just says, Lord, remind me always why I do this and remind me always who you are and who you've been in my life. Vagina's dead two years ago now. My brother went through probably one of the most difficult things ever. He um, he had a mental breakdown, and it's something like we've never experienced before, like in our fa- in our family and in our um, community. And um, he had a mental breakdown, and um, I remember I was at work when I got the call. Like they're just like, you know, he wants to speak to you. He wants you here. And he was in Tennessee, so I, I drove five hours to Tennessee to be with him. And when I got there, he was already in, you know, the hospital and, you know, hooked up and, you know, they had him in this room by himself where he can't hurt himself or whatever. And it was heartbreaking. I remember like just crying and like being, and I'm not, a, I don't cry. I well, you know, I try not to for the most part, but like, I kind of like felt like super, I, I don't know, for the first time I felt like I just, I couldn't fight darkness with the light. And um, I just, I don't know, I feel like I lost my place and everything. And um, I sat down at the piano. It was um, a church nearby that um, we're affiliated with. I went there, just hung out with some friends. They were there. And I sat down at a piano and um, I literally, with my friend Aaron Moses, and I literally just started like, declaring what I kind of I felt like it was hard my faith was like battling between my circumstance <laughs> and I just started declaring the giant is dead we've got his head and that's all I had at the time just the giant is dead we've got his head the giant is dead we've got his head and like obviously I finished it that day I finished the entire song that day and um, um, so it was rooted I mean, it came out of a place of just vulnerability and not feeling like I can actually defeat the giant or defeat the darkness. And it was more so me prophesying or declaring that no matter what I feel, no matter what I see, I read the end of the story and all things bow in the name of Jesus. So the giant is already dead. And um, I always tell people that song was not written for victory. I wasn't writing it for victory. I was literally trying to position myself from victory and write it from victory because I didn't necessarily feel like victory was going to come but I definitely knew I had the victory because I've read this I've read the end of the story For me, Come Alive is a beckoning to our generation that maybe they maybe they danced with revival. Maybe they danced with, man, I want to be bold for Christ. Or maybe maybe they danced with the idea of like being a laid down, you know, just burning Christian. And I feel like Come Alive is an aggressive 
beckoning. Like if they were dancing, it's like the thing to push them over the line. <laughs> come alive, come alive. Like it's just something like to push them over the line. I also feel like for those that have been doing it forever and somehow have lost their fervor, their fire, or their salt, or their light due to life, you know, ups and downs, and maybe they're like, okay, you know. I'm 45, God, God's not using me. He's using another generation. Now, I missed my window of opportunity. I'm 55 or I'm 65. Maybe I, went, I missed my window of opportunity. God's already moving. He's using younger people to lead, you know, our generation into worship, to speak life over our generation as a speaker. And I'm, I'm, I've missed it. And I feel like it's like this aggressive shout that push, that will push people over that line of doubt, fear, anxiety, or, you know, just not knowing if it's even like, if God's even going to use them. I feel like just, I don't know, an aggressive shout to just say, come alive, come alive, dry bones. Awake, arise, inhale the light. Come alive, come alive. That was Dante Bo. Well, hey, many thanks to Amanda Tyler for joining us talk about Christian nationalism today. You can and should follow her at Amanda Tyler BJC over on Twitter. Thanks to Dante Bo as well. He's over on Instagram at Dante Bo. That's at D A N T E. Bo is B O W E. Uh, we'll be looking forward to hearing more from him in the near future. Make sure that you subscribe to Relevant Daily as well while you're on our Apple podcast page. Uh, that's where I bring you the most important stories of the intersection of faith and culture every single day. Uh, you can subscribe there and hear us talk about those. And with that, we'll wrap it up. I'm Tyler Huckabee. Jim the String. I'm on math. <laughs> wait, wait. Meth, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm not, I'm not literally taking meth right now. What I'm saying is I'm on the case. On it. I'm on math. And I'm John David Harris. <laughs> Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll see you next time. For listening to the relevant podcast if you like what you heard be sure to leave us a review on itunes check out other shows from the relevant podcast network in the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com and while you're there browse exclusive podcast merchandise at our online store make sure to subscribe to relevant magazine info is available at relevantmagazine.com forward slash subscribe why is everything so messed up anyway we made it so we chase and true love How does it feel like Remedy So it can only be As long as the force of your fantasy Forevermore It's gonna be I Virginia is for lovers Relevant Podcast Network